Amen, amen, thank you. Mark chapter number 15 is where we are today. And I'm going to attempt to do something that if one of my former students had done this, I would have reprimanded, chided, and probably given a bad grade. But since I'm the prof, I can do whatever I want, right? All right, here we go. Uh, If this thing does become too cumbersome, I know how to treat it like a salami. And what is a salami sermon? Cut it off anywhere you want to and it's still good. That's right. It's the same. Now, while the emotional tone of these two paragraphs... uh, By the way, what, what I'm attempting to do that I would not have been pleased with had a student done this is take two paragraphs and put them in one sermon. I think the scripture comes in blocks like this for a reason. And the reason is, preacher, to preach it a block at a time. So I am going to take both of these final blocks, both of these final paragraphs, verses 42 through 47 in Mark chapter 15, and verses 1 through 8 in chapter 16, and put them together because although the emotional tone is is drastically different between these two paragraphs, I think also they are intricately related. So I want to hold them together for that reason. So let's look at these two paragraphs at the close of Mark's gospel. Mark tells us in verse 42 of chapter 15, When evening had already come, because it was the preparation day, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea came, a prominent member of the council, who himself was waiting for the kingdom of God. And he gathered up courage and went in before Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate wondered if he was dead by this time. And summoning the centurion, he questioned him as to whether he was already dead. And ascertaining this from the centurion, he granted the body to Joseph. Joseph bought a linen cloth, took him down, wrapped him in the linen cloth, and laid him in a tomb which had been hewn out in the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joses were looking on to see where he was laid. Verse 1 of chapter 16 says, When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome bought spices so that they might come and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? Looking up, they saw the stone had been rolled away, although it was extremely large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting at the right, wearing a white robe, and they were amazed. And he said to them, Do not be amazed. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene, who has been crucified. He has risen. And he's not here. Behold, here is the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. They went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had gripped them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. I want to marry these two 
very distinct and separate passages and paragraphs at the close of Mark's gospel under the theme of no secrets. No secrets. I mean, have you ever been told that it's rude to tell secrets? I mean, it just is. Have you ever seen somebody whispering? What do you automatically think when you see somebody whispering? You automatically assume that they're talking about you. So on one hand, secrets are rude. And on the other hand, uh, secrets are just downright disobedience to the Word of God. You know, I try to keep one ear tuned in to the scholarly discussion within high theology. Because all, there's always some interesting subjects that are floated across out there. And every now and then I, I work some of them into the message. Maybe uh, you don't know it, but that's what they are. For example, a few weeks ago when we talked about Peter following at a distance and I said that he is a good example of what a carnal believer looks like. That is someone who is a believer but yet walks more under the power and influence of the flesh than they do under the influence of the Spirit. And in the realm of scholarly debate today, there is a question of whether or not a carnal believer even exists. Is it a theological possibility for someone to actually be a carnal believer? And boy, we could spend some time today uh, on both sides of that debate, but that's not our purpose. But here within this passage is another subject that the scholars are debating today whether or not there can be any such thing as a secret disciple. Now let me show you this. Uh, you'll notice the passage that Troy read this morning in John chapter 19. And I, I want you to look at it real quick because it does form the basis of what we are going to say today. Look with me in John chapter 19 and verse number 38. The Bible says... After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, being a, a disciple of Jesus, but what? But a secret one. So now, let's talk about this today. Is it possible for there to be a secret disciple? Well, I'm going to take the position that on this side of the cross, that it is theologically impossible for someone to be a genuine born-again believer, but remain a secret believer. And I think the entire weight of the New Testament mitigates against the idea that someone can genuinely be born-again, a follower of Christ, but still be in the closet as it relates to your faith. And it all has to do with these two paragraphs, paragraphs right here. So let's jump right in because we need to make good use of our time today and see what the Bible has to say about no secrets, especially as it relates to being a secret disciple. By the way, do you know anybody? Everybody does. You know that person that they will tell you they are a believer in Jesus Christ, but to look at their life, you couldn't tell it. I mean, they're not affiliated with a local church. They do not gather to worship publicly. They're not connected with the body for mutual edification. They're not joining with anybody in order to accomplish the great commission which Christ left for us. But yet they want to say that they're a believer. Well, let's see what this scripture has to say about this. Notice what it is that I think paragraph number one says for us. 
I think paragraph number 1, verses 42 through 47 tell us that there are no secret disciples because the cross draws out public devotion. There's just something about the cross that draws it out of us. It has nothing to do with us. It has everything to do with the cross. Now notice that Joseph and Nicodemus, by the way, were both secret disciples and they stayed in the closet prior to the cross of Jesus Christ. But when he was crucified, what happened? They can no longer remain secret disciples. Now, notice there's something about Mark that is peculiar to his writing style. This is not a discrepancy. It's just his writing style. Take good note. Mark has a propensity for focusing on one in a group of two. For example, in Mark chapter 11 when we look at that donkey, you remember that donkey that Jesus rode into town? Mark focuses on one, the coal, the colt. The other evangelists, Luke and Matthew, tell us that there were two, right? When it comes to healing the blind man, Bartimaeus, Mark focuses on only Bartimaeus. But the other evangelists tell us that there were two blind men on the side of the road. Similarly, we see right here in this passage, Mark focuses on Joseph of Arimathea. But John tells us that Nicodemus was also involved in what took place as they were taking Jesus from the cross to the tomb. That's not a discrepancy. It's just Mark's writing style. He chooses to focus on one whenever there's a group of two, and he does it almost 100% of the time. So let's look now here as he focuses on Joseph of Arimathea, but notice I have cast that in the plural because there are two there, both Joseph and Nicodemus. So why is it that the cross draws out public devotion? And I think there are significant clues hidden within this passage that tell us why that there's no such thing as a secret disciple, a genuine, born-again, secret disciple, this side of the cross of Jesus Christ. There's just something inherent within the cross, Jerry, that will pull every believer in Jesus out of the shadows, out of the closet, and to walk in the light as He is in the light. Amen. So check it out. Number one, why are there no secret disciples? Why were these boys drawn out into public devotion? I think number one, verse number 43 tells us because they were enlightened by the cross. They were enlightened by the cross. Now, check this out. Look with me in verse number 43. The Bible tells us that Joseph of Arimathea was a prominent member of the council, and here we go, who himself was waiting for the kingdom of God. See that word waiting? Now to underline that, that is a very unique word and it's used uh, uh, of Simeon and Anna. Now, do you remember Simeon and Anna? Luke tells us about Simeon in, in Luke chapter number 2 when uh, Jesus was brought to the temple. Luke tells us that Simeon and Anna, or between Matthew and Luke, we get Simeon and Anna were both looking. They were devout people and they were both looking for the kingdom of God. Here it's translated in Mark as they were waiting on the kingdom of God. In other words, there was an anticipation in their heart that God was going to do something. He was going to send a deliverer. He was going to send a Messiah. 
And if you'll notice in Luke chapter 2, when this man who was looking for the kingdom of God, looking for the Messiah, saw Jesus Christ that day, he immediately recognized him as to who he was and he went into his famous Nuke Dementis, now depart. God, you can now let me die because my eyes have seen your salvation. And it's the same word. So could it be that there's something about the cross that for those who are looking, anticipating, expecting God to do something, there's something about the cross of Jesus Christ that just enlightens them. And now here this guy is, all of a sudden he sees more than he ever dreamed of and what he saw overcame by far what little bit of fear he had and he has to come out of the closet. Hey, anybody who has ever looked at the cross correctly has done so because the Spirit of God has enlightened you as to the reality of what God is doing in Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary. That's the only reason why any of us ever look at the cross correctly is because we have help. We have divine aid. We have the Spirit of God enlightening us. Now notice... Here this old boy was. He, was, he was enlightened. We can say both of them were enlightened. I'm sorry, I'm going to fumble all over this thing because I don't have one of my normal shirts on. I had to put my microphone in my cigarette pockets. And that never works out well when you have to put your microphone <laughs> where your cigs normally go, huh? <laughs> Y'all know I'm joking. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now, what was I saying before I departed on such foolishness. Everybody's gone. Let me go. Let me start all over. Luke chapter, Mark chapter 15 is where we are today. (laughs) Here's the thing. These boys were enlightened. And can I say this to you? Watch me. In order to have spiritual insight, in order to be enlightened, you don't have to be smart. All you have to be is hungry. And this old boy here was hungry. He was looking for something. Do you see that? That's not what that word means. He was anticipating. He was expecting. He was hungry. And that's what the Bible says over and over. You you don't have to be an intellectual giant to be spiritually sharp and to be spiritually enlightened. All you have to be is hungry. Here's what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse number 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be left starving. Huh? No. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst, for they shall be filled. Shall be filled. Man, had I rather have a bunch of disciples who are of the intellectual capacity of Mensa membership, or had I rather have a bunch of disciples who are just hungry for the truth of God's Word? Son, it's no question which one I'd rather have. I've always told her, do you know what my fantasy and dream in ministry has always been? Huh? Listen, and I hadn't been the pastor of the church that runs 5,000 and has the bowling alley and the gymnasium and the pizza parlor and all that stuff on their campus. That's not been it. Heather, you can ask Heather this. I, I mean, I could have Heather come up here and answer. What has been my dream my entire ministry? And here it is. God, would you just give me some folk who are hungry and I'll wear myself out filling them with the truth of your word. And can I say, Heather will also tell you, that we've been around this world and the only place other than the jungle of Brazil we found is right here at Grace Bonifay. 
Thank you, church, for being hungry. If you weren't hungry, I want to tell you something. I, I, don't, I don't know how much longer I can stand preaching to folk who just have no appetite for God. I've spent most of my life doing that, and I, I don't want to do it anymore. There's too, too many other things I could be doing, too many other places I'd rather be. Don't lose your hunger, because I'm telling you, if you lose your hunger, God stops filling you. Check this out. Number one, not only were these guys drawn out by the cross, their public devotion was drawn out by the cross. They were enlightened. It's no coincidence that these guys were secret disciples up until they saw what? The cross. That's exactly right. But look, not only were these guys enlightened by the cross, but verse number 30, uh, 43 also tells us they were emboldened by the cross. Check out this. And this, the root word here is, is to be made bold. Look what it says in verse 43. And he gathered up courage and went before Pilate. Can I say this to you? Everyone who has ever been enlightened by the cross has been enlightened by the Holy Spirit of God doing His miracle work of illumination in our darkened minds. And let me quick and quickly say that everyone whom He enlightens, He also emboldens. That's why I say there's no such thing as a secret disciple. Son, if your heart and your mind has been enlightened to the reality of the cross and who He is, that automatically comes with the second phase of this, which means you are made bold. You're made bold. And here they were, both Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, now where they had been scared and fearful, now they are boldly going before the governor and saying, Hey, Gov, can we at least have his body? Hey, that's pretty public, is it not? How much more public can it be? Coming from the closet, going to the governor's office and proclaiming your faith and your devotion and your love for this one who's hanging on a tree just outside the gates of the walls of Jerusalem. Well, I say there's no secret disciples because these boys were enlightened by the cross. They were emboldened by the cross. But notice something else. They were also endangered by the cross. They were in that. You know, we talk about this all the time. And I hear people say it sometimes. They say, you know, the safest place to be center of God's will. No, it's not. That's the most dangerous place to be. Huh? That, that, that's where you live in the danger zone. But most of the time, God's faithful to take care of us in the danger zone, is He not? Now look how much these two boys had to lose. Notice, notice what it says. Why were they formerly in the closet as it relates to their faith? Number one, because Joseph was a prominent member. That, that word is based on a word that speaks to his wealth. He was a wealthy man. And nobody would disagree with that based on some of the things that he did. But not only was he wealthy and he had a lot to lose, but he was also a prominent member of the council. Now what council is that? That's the Sanhedrin. That's those rascals that just two nights ago sentenced Jesus to death. And John tells us that, that Joseph and Nicodemus were not consenting to that vote. They did not vote in favor of it. Or either they just abstained from voting altogether. I don't know. So they had a lot to lose. Look, you remember Nicodemus first came to Jesus when? In John chapter 3. At night. Because he knew if he was seen affiliating with him, he stood to risk a lot. Joseph, by coming out of the closet and going before Pilate, the Sanhedrin hears that he has taken care of this criminal's body. Guess what he stands to lose? But can I tell you this? 
no matter what you stand to lose for your faith in Jesus Christ, it amounts to nothing in compared to what you stand to gain. Huh? I mean, you don't lose anything when you start comparing it to what you gain when you stand up for Jesus Christ. Oh, by the way, I think Jesus himself testifies that there's no such thing to a secret disciple because this is what he said. If you do not confess me before men, I will be ashamed of you before my Father. But if you confess me before men, see, that's public, is it not? I will also confess you before my Father. Now check out, man, they had a lot to lose. But here's what I find about disciples who have been emboldened. They don't mind taking risks for Jesus Christ. They don't mind doing things that most folks say, Have you lost your mind? Are you crazy? You're going to do what? That's just where they live, in the danger zone. They take risks regularly for the love of their life, and that is Jesus Christ. So these men, the reason they can no longer stay in the closet is because they'd been enlightened. They had been emboldened. They were endangered for the cross. But notice number next in verse 46, they also incurred expense for the cross. Expense. Look at verse number 46. The Bible says Joseph bought. Underline that word. Joseph bought. That's expense. Now what did he buy? He bought a fine linen cloth. Oh, he didn't just go down to Target or Walmart and pick up something that was on 50% off. This is the high quality stuff of that day. You know what I'm saying? This is the expensive stuff. Now, notice, let's see if I can find that passage real quick back in John that talks of both of them. Yeah, here it is. Look what Nicodemus did in verse 39 of John chapter 19. Nicodemus, who had first come to him by night, also came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds weight. Now, where have you encountered myrrh before in the Gospels? Who brought it? A, a, a king, you remember? One of the wise men, that's right. They brought gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Those were very expensive gifts. And can I say this to you? I bet that king from the east didn't have 100 pounds in his bag. Huh? But Nicodemus bought 100 pounds. So these guys incurred great expense gladly for the cross of Jesus Christ. Now, can I ask you a couple questions real quick? Maybe, maybe this is grace group type stuff. Take note, grace group leaders. Hey, what's the cross cost you? Has it cost you anything? One of my Brazilian buddies told me one time, he said, Pastor Richie, I think I figured out why, why there's so many folk in the U.S. whose faith is so powerless. I said, man, I've studied that all my life. Tell me what you think. He said, I can tell you why. He said, when folk come to faith in the U.S., it costs them nothing. He said, but when we come to faith down here, it costs us everything. Heather will tell you, we have taken in folk who just because of their public devotion to Jesus, mom and dad, have shut them out of the house. They've come home and found everything they own in a, in a plastic bag on the doorstep with a note saying, we don't want you here no more. And yet, our faith in the United States cost us nothing. Boy, I want to tell you, it cost these old boys something. Hey, here's another question, Grace Group. How has your faith in Christ put you in danger? 
Now, I'm not saying recklessly put yourself in danger for the gospel, but you know, sometimes it will. You have the danger of being shut out of some social circles. You, you have the danger of, of maybe not, not being put up for a promotion that you are rightly in line for. I mean, there are all kinds of repercussions that come. And son, if we're not paying any price, if we're not in any danger for the cross, then I have to wonder, is our faith really where it's supposed to be? Check out number next. Not only were these guys enlightened, emboldened, endangered, incurred expense for the cross, but they also gave evidence at the cross. Evidence, evidence, evidence. What kind of evidence? Well, glad you asked that question. Here's the evidence that these boys give. They give evidence, number one, to the fact of his death. Do you understand? It is theologically mandatory that the Son of God had to die on Calvary's cross. And can I say to you today, there's, a, there's dozens of theories out there that indicate that he did not die on the cross because the enemy knows that it's theologically necessary for atonement to take place, for substitution to be valid, that he had to taste death for you and for me. He really, literally, physically died on Calvary's cross. It's mandatory. It's an essential part of the gospel. And there are folk out there today that say, oh, by the way, here's one of the theories. One of the theories is known as the swoon theory. You ever heard of the swoon theory? And the swoon theory just says that on the cross, Jesus was so overcome until he just kind of swooned. Swoon means, you ever seen young girls at a rock concert? Huh? You ever seen how they pass out? Oh! Well, that's what it means to swoon. And they say that Jesus didn't really die. He just swooned. And he swooned to such till he went into a heart rhythm known as bradycardia. His respirations slowed down till they thought he was dead and they laid him in the tomb. And the coolness of that slab and the cool air inside that enclosed tomb revived his body and he walked back out on the third day. You know what that is? Hey, thank you. Thank you. That's what that is. No, listen. These two boys give evidence that he died. Not only do they give evidence, but Pilate wouldn't take their word for it. He called in an official representative of the Roman government. He called in a centurion and said, Hey, this can't be so. Most people when I hang on a cross, they, they just linger around for two or three days. And you telling me this man's already dead? Yes, he is, Pilate, because you didn't kill him. He surrendered his life. He gave up the spirit when he was ready. When it was done, when it was finished, there was no sense in him hanging around anymore, literally. So he just committed his spirit into the hands of the Father. Now the centurion says, Yes, sir, governor, he's dead as a doornail. He died. And why is it important that he died for you and for me? Because he took the sting of death. Death hit him with its best shot for you and for me. There was a great pastor in the state of Texas several years ago who lost his wife. And on the way, after preaching her funeral, he got in that Cadillac that follows the hearse. And he took his young daughter in the Cadillac with him. And they were riding to the graveside and he was going to preach the graveside service. And he was a little bit hot as preachers can be after preaching, so he cracked the window. And when he cracked the window, a dang wasp flew in the car. And his daughter is seriously allergic to bee stings. 
She's so allergic that if that bee stings her, she's probably not going to make it to a hospital. So when she saw that bee come in, she went crazy and started going crazy and trying to hide and get away and get all the way to this side of the car. And the preacher took his hand and he caught the wasp. And he threw it out the window. And he said, baby, he can't hurt you anymore. Look, his stinger's in my hand. And you understand that's exactly what Christ did on the cross. He took the sting of death. The stinger is in him. So it doesn't hurt you. As a matter of fact, I was talking with a boy this week. He said, do you know that death is really a gracious gift of God? I said, yeah, Hebrews tells us death is literally a ministering servant of God for those who believe. He said it is. He said, do you know how mixed up this world we're living in is today, Pastor Richie? He said, they're telling us that there's 50 possible genders out there. Good Lord, have mercy. He said, said, after the fall, who would want to live to be a thousand years old in this mess? And I said, you're exactly right. The good news is, believer, you don't face the sting of death. The stinger's in him. Check out number next. What else did they give evidence to? Not only the fact of his death, but to what faith does. What faith does. What does faith does? Write this down. Tough stuff. Tough stuff. Faith does not produce wussies. Huh? Now I had to check my preacher dictionary to see if that's an allowable word from the pulpit. I didn't check it before I got up here. But I'm just telling you, faith doesn't produce mamby-pambies. It produces folk who are willing to do tough stuff. Are you with me? Look what these boys did. Now, I want you to imagine how tough must this be. Pick up with me in verse number 46. After Joseph bought a linen cloth, he took him down. How would you like to have the task of doing that for one of your best friends? He's been nailed to a cross after having been scourged. And his lifeless, limp, dead body is on a cross. Now here's what you've got to do if you're going to get him down. Number one, you've got to get some help, i.e. Nicodemus. Huh? Number next, you've got to get a ladder because you can't reach him from the ground. You've got to lean a ladder up on a tree and then when you get up there, you've got to tend with nails. I'm talking real rusty, rough railroad spikes that are all the way through. And you've got to take him physically off of that nail. And your ears are going to hear bone grating against rusty iron. Your eyes are going to see flesh tearing because you can't get it off of there without doing some type of damage to his arm. And you've got to do that. Can you imagine what Joseph of Arimathea saw as he took Christ down off the cross? My goodness. But look here, it had to be done. And Joseph of Arimathea was a man as it relates to faith. And son, he leaned his ladder up on that old rugged tree. He climbed up and maybe stood on that part that that Lowe's puts on the top of their ladders that says this is not a step, but everybody uses it for a step. (laughs) He was in danger just by standing on that. And then he's got to pull the body of his hero and friend and the one who embodied his hopes and dreams down off an old rugged cross. My goodness. Let me run on to the next one that they, they give evidence to. The fact of his death. 
to what faith does, and I think hidden within this is to how forgiveness is granted. Do you know how forgiveness is granted? Forgiveness is granted one way theologically. It's granted by the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, I'm trying to find something spur of the moment right here. Let me see if I can find it. Spur of the moment. Yeah, I've got it. So just hold on what you got. Here's how, th- here's how forgiveness is given. When Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea got up on the ladder that day and they pulled the hands of Christ out of those nails and those nails out of his hands and out of his feet, they had to catch him before he fell. I mean, he's not nailed anymore and he's lifeless. He's not holding himself up there. Somebody's got to catch him. So when they catch him, get this. They just caught a bloodied, battered, beaten body. When those two got to that tomb that day, let me tell you what they looked like. They looked out like Joe who'd been at the butcher shop slaughtering lambs all day. Huh? They looked like Jason on Texas Chainsaw Massacre. They were covered in blood. Now can I ask you, is there anything better to be covered in than the blood of Jesus Christ? Have you been to Jesus for the cleansing power? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Are you fully trusting in His grace this hour? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? You see, faith does tough stuff. It took them to the cross. And faith always, always puts us in touch with the blood of Jesus. It always does. Here it did it physically. But I want to tell you, for you, it's just as effective when it does it spiritually. Listen to this verse that I was trying to pull out spur of the moment. Listen to what this John said who wrote the gospel. He said, but if we walk in the light as he, his, he himself is in the light, there's the faith part. If we walk in the light, that's faith. Now what does faith do? If we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. My goodness. Do you see how forgiveness is granted in the picture of what these two boys did when they mustered the faith to go and get Jesus down from the cross? It's a picture of the gospel. I got to hurry. If I got time to, oh yeah, I got plenty of time. I don't have to cut it off like a salami. Here we go. Number next. Let me get back to where I was in Mark. Now let's get to the, let's, let's turn the page now and get to Sunday morning. This is Friday evening. Now, one through eight is Sunday morning. Are you with me? No secrets because the cross draws out public devotion. No secret, verses 1 through 8, because the empty tomb demands that we publish the details. Huh? That's what, that's what verses 1 through 8 are all about. Now, notice about this publishing the details. Let me say first to you this. Publishing the details is the very desire of angels. Did you know angels... Wish they could do what you have the opportunity to do. But I remember what Moose said when he was here, missionary from Ghana. He says, God has not ordained the gospel that's proclaimed by angels, but it's proclaimed by those of us who've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Angels know nothing of that. But did you know the Bible tells us the angels want so badly to do this? Check out, write this verse down. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse number 12. Listen to this verse. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you. 
in these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. And John gives us a parenthetical statement. Listen to what he says. Things in which angels long to look. That word long is the same word that's used just a little bit farther over when Peter says desire the sincere milk of the word. Hey, angels would love to be the announcers of the gospel of the good news of Jesus Christ. They would give anything to have one opportunity to do what we have ten opportunities to do every day and don't. Now notice these angels. There's a couple angels here and here's where Mark does his propensity again. Because Luke tells us there were two angels there. And here's what Luke tells us. Luke tells us their appearance was dazzling like lightning. He says they were like lightning. It's no wonder that the Roman guard who was put out to guard the tomb when he saw this, these two angels like lightnings, like, that looked like lightning sitting on the top of the stone that they rolled away, the Bible says they did what? They swooned. <laughs> they did. That's what they did. They swooned. They fell over <laughs> like they were dead. So look what Mark does. Instead of talking about two of them, Mark just focuses on the spokesman of the two. So here's what, he, here's what they talk about. Notice what the angels talk about. And, and, and boy, get this. This may be the only time in the Heilsgeschichtig. Anybody speak German? <laughs> this is the only time in salvation history <laughs> that an angel was allowed an opportunity to deliver good news. Huh? And can you imagine that day in heaven? Because the angels, all of them, myriads and myriads and ten thousands upon ten thousands, they desire to look on these things concerning the gospel. And on this one Sunday morning, God the Father says, Hey, I, I need a volunteer to go sit in the tomb and tell the good news to Mary when she comes. Any volunteers? So and I bet as far as the eye could see. Do you remember that show, Welcome Back, Cotter, with old Arnold Horshack? Ooh, 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 ooh. I, I bet hands of angels went up everywhere. Huh? And there was this little old bitty one right down on the front row. Let's call him Seth. The father said, Seth, this is a job for you. You have a friend that wants to go with you? All right, take Evan, your friend, with you. That'll be fine with me. Y'all go sit in that tomb. And this is the only time after this, no more angels involved in the gospel. It's going to be only the redeemed. Can you imagine... And now here they are. They're in the tomb and these two ladies come. And what do they talk about? Well, there, there are about four things here that they talked about in this conversation they had in the tomb. And notice, everything the angels said. Everything. When angels show up, they don't say, Hey, what do you think about this fine white robe? Looks like lightning. <laughs> Ain't I sporting it? Yeah, that's right. Ain't I sporting something? Look at me. Look what I can do. No, they never do. You know what angels talk about? They're amazed with their king, yeah. Jesus. So everything that spokesperson angel said that day was referenced to Jesus Christ. So look what he said. Number one, they talked about the city of Christ. Verse number six. And he said to them, Do not be amazed. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene. We could say Jesus of Nazareth. Now why is that important? 
Friends, have you ever heard of all these liberal quests called the search for historical Jesus? Well, this angel is making dang sure that you understand. You're, I'm talking and you're looking for the historical Jesus. You know, Jesus was a common name back then. It is today in, in some Latin cultures. You'll, be, you'll find some, meet somebody named Jesus. But this angel is being very specific. You're not looking for just any Jesus. You're looking for Jesus the Nazarene. So number one, they talked about the city of Christ. But number two, they also talked about the cross of Christ. Look, that angel said just to make sure if there was two Jesus from Nazareth, this is the Jesus of Nazareth that was crucified. Look what he said in verse number 6. He said, you're looking for Jesus of Nazarene who has been crucified. So the conversation is all about Jesus. Are we on the same page, Mary? Is this the same Jesus we're talking about? Is the one I'm talking about the one you're looking for? I think so. Notice number next. What else did they talk about? Well, they talked about the commission of Christ. See, Christ gave a commission. And notice what the angel says. Uh, verse number 7, here's the commission. But go, tell his disciples and Peter. Man, that just struck me this week. Stop and think about this. How many angels you reckon know your name? How many of them you reckon know your name because of what you're doing for Christ Jesus? That angel called Peter by his name. Can you imagine what that did for Peter? Peter just failed horribly, did he not? I mean, he fell flat on him. He face-planted spiritually. He could be thinking, it's over with. I'm, I'm done. Can't recover from a fall like this. And that angel says, go and tell his disciples and Peter. Check out number next. Not only did they talk about the commission, go and tell. But I think they also talked about a conversation that they had had with Christ. Isn't this cool? Can you just imagine? Christ is entering glory. And as He's entering to the applause of all of the myriads of angels and all the redeemed from the Old Testament, He walks in and these two are on their way out going to sit in the tomb. And He stops and says, Hey, let me tell you a few things. He said, Tell them this. Isn't that cool? No, no I think there's a conversation with Christ behind what it is that they say here. Notice what it is that they say in, in, in verse number 7. But go and tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. You know what? You, you, man, this verse holds so much. Holds so much. Number one, if Jesus told you, his word's good. Huh? So the angel said, you remember what he told y'all? He told us too. Get on down into Galilee because he's going ahead of you. Number two, Jesus won't send you anywhere where He already is not. Huh? That's what missionaries tell us. Man, when they get to the mission field, everybody says, Oh, I can't believe what you gave up to come down here. They can't believe what they gained in getting there. The felt, concentrated presence of the Lord Jesus Christ, the same one who sent them from here, greets them when they get over there. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the world. Well, they talked about a conversation with Christ. Now, i got to hurry because we're about out of time. Look here, no secrets because the cross draws out public devotion. No secret because the empty tomb demands that we publish the details. It's the desire of angels. But get this, verse number 8, it is the delight of the announcers. That is, the human announcers. It ought to be our delight. Now, check the way this comes out in verse number 8. Check it out. 
They went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment, underline that word, had gripped them. That word astonishment, let me give it to you in Greek. And since y'all are Greek scholars, y'all know exactly what English word comes from it. Here it is. Here's the word in Greek. Ecstasis had gripped them. Huh? Ecstatic or ecstasy? Do you know what ecstasy means? It means that there is no emotion within your body referent to what you're feeling. You've never felt this before. You have no point of reference. You don't know how to process it. Therefore, you're ecstasis. The word literally means to stand outside of your body. It's almost as if you are outside yourself. And it simply means you have no point of reference within you. This is so foreign. This so blows my mind until I can't grip it. But it's ecstasy. It's that feeling of euphoria and delight that they were taken back by it. I bet these two gals almost swooned themselves. What do you think? Ecstasy. You see, they were ecstatic with joy. Ecstatic with joy. But now, check this out, and I've got to close this thing down. Let me get into some textual criticism with you. Textual criticism is good and it's bad. There is a good side of textual criticism. It doesn't criticize the Bible. It just tries to ascertain what is the best reading of the text. And there's a rule in textual criticism that is followed pretty hard and fast. The earliest manuscript is normally the most likely. Because did you know this? And, and here's another reading. Here's another principle. The shorter reading is probably the most reliable. Because here's what humans have the tendency to do. They don't have a tendency to take away but add to. Huh? So here's what we have in the Gospel of Mark. You see verse number 8? Verse number 8 in the earliest manuscripts we have is the end of the Gospel. Boop! Son, you talk about cut something off like a salami. That old boy chopped it off like a salami. Now look, I don't have a problem at all with preaching verses 9 through 20. You know why? Because as it relates to the Holy Spirit, He has three roles in Scripture. Number one, inspiration. Would you agree with me? We have this book because of the inspiration of the Holy Spirit upon the authors, right? Number two, illumination. You and I can understand this book only when the Holy Spirit of God illumines our spiritually slow and dull minds. Would you agree with me on that? Number three, the role of the Holy Spirit is preservation. If He hadn't preserved this book down throughout the centuries, we wouldn't have it today, boys. He has supernaturally guarded this thing. And it doesn't matter to me whether this came from the pen of Mark or whether it came from the pen of one of his disciples 50 years later because he thought the Indian, Indian happened too short. Bottom line is the Holy Spirit has preserved it and kept us here for it. So I say preach it as the Word of God. Now here we go. But I think Mark did this for dramatic effect. Can I say that to you? I think he cut it off for dramatic effect. Look how Mark's gospel ends. They went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had gripped them and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Now, let's take this on a very basic emotional level. If that's the end of the gospel, if that's all you had was the gospel of Mark, and you're sitting in Rome in a persecuted church, and it ends right there with verse number 8, what is your emotional response to that? Here it is. I can't believe I didn't tell anybody. we got to tell everybody this. 
So not only is it the, 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 delight, the delight of the announcers because they were ecstatic with joy, but Mark ends it in such a way that he expects you and I to join. Isn't that right? So here it is. Mark chapter 17 is literally written by Grace Church. When Dr. John Wilson stands up here in a little while and says, Grace Church, you are sent. You are sent to write Mark chapter 17 because you're expected to join. Hey, we can't leave it right there. Those women are running from the tomb, scared and afraid. They said nothing to anyone. This has got to be published. So the dramatic effect is, church, get out there and proclaim the details of the great news of the empty tomb. Hey, the cross draws out our public devotion. And the empty tomb demands that we publish the details. Hey, where are you today? Do you need to come out? You know, that's what invitations at local churches are all about. It's really not you coming down here to be saved. It's really about coming down here and proclaiming publicly what God has done for us privately. So if God saved you and you've never made it public, I invite you to come today. If you've been living in the closet, not walking in the light as He is in the light, where the blood of Jesus can cleanse us from all our sin, I invite you to come to the light today. If you're here today and never been born again and you want to know what Scripture says about it, come. If you're here today and you want to publicly unite with a church that believes in getting it done, come. The cross demands it. And the empty tomb necessitates it. If you need to do something today in Jesus' name, let's get it done. Dr. John Wilson will be up here on one side. Our student director, Colin Dollar, will be up here on the other side. You just need somebody to pray with you. You come. We'll be glad to do it. Whatever God said to you in Jesus' name, in light of the cross, you be faithful. Would you stand with us? Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you, God, that when our hearts have been gripped by the reality of the cross and the empty tomb, that indeed we cannot stay in the shadows. We can't even stay like we were. We're transformed. We're changed. And more than that, we can't keep secrets. We can't stay silent for the ecstasy and for the joy and for the delight that's ours in spreading the good news that that tomb does not have anyone in it. So Lord, I pray today that Grace Church is going to be the ones who write Mark 17. And we publish this week in Bonifay and around this globe the good news that this Jesus of Nazarene who has been crucified is not here, but He's risen with victory in His hand. Thank You, Lord, for what You've done. May we respond in faith to what You've said this day, and I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.